You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is February 18th, 2024, and this is episode 265 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to listen to two interviews that relate to what happened to Whale Rock Lighthouse in Rhode Island in the hurricane of 1938. I want to wish everyone a happy President's Day weekend. Do you have any special plans for the weekend, Michelle? Um, no, so it's not a holiday weekend for me or anything, So because we have to work on Monday, but just meeting up at the lighthouse to go look at, you know, assess some of the damage and working. That's my, those are my plans for the weekend. Yeah, that's right. We're going to take a look at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, uh, get more of an assessment of the, the damage there that was done in the storms a few weeks ago and so forth. So that'll be interesting. But you don't have the day off, Monday off from no, school? No, we've where you never... Teach? Nope, we've never gotten President's Day off, so we have February vacation the following week, so. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah I was thinking it was a school holiday, but it shows, shows what I know. I'm out of touch with the <laughs> the schools these days. So anyway, we'll enjoy February vacation when that comes. Yes, yeah. definitely looking forward to that. I'll bet. So we have two very interesting interviews today, and I want to get right into the introduction. Uh, please help me out, Michelle. Sure, Jeremy. Standing offshore at the entrance to the West Passage of Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island are the twisted remains of the foundation of Whale Rock Lighthouse. The ruins can also be regarded as a memorial to Walter Eberly, the keeper who lost his life in the most terrible of all 20th century New England storms. Whale Rock Light, a typical cast iron spark plug type lighthouse, was constructed in 1882 to help mariners pass a treacherous reef. Fifteen years before the lighthouse was built, a schooner had hit the rocks, killing five of the six men aboard. Isolated Whale Rock was not a desirable location for keepers, and 16 different men served as head keeper between 1882 and 1909. A 1924 storm sent waves over the top of the tower and did some damage to the structure, but that storm was nothing compared to what was to come in 1938. Walter Barge Eberly, assistant keeper at Whale Rock Light in 1938, was a 20-year Navy veteran and master diver. Born in Webster City, Iowa in 1898, Eberly had run away from home and lied about his age to enter the Navy at age 15. In 1937, Eberly entered the lighthouse service and was assigned to Whale Rock, a welcome assignment since it was close to his home in Newport. Eberly and his wife, Agnes, had six children. On September 21, 1938, Keeper Eberly saw that the seas were growing rough around Whale Rock. Because of the conditions, he had left the mainland earlier than had been scheduled to relieve Keeper Dan Sullivan at the lighthouse. With practically no advance warning, a devastating hurricane was bearing down on New England's south-facing coast. The waves grew higher and higher as the Hurricane of 38 battered the tower. It was a long, anxious night for the Eberlys. At about 5.30 in the morning, Keeper Daniel Sullivan phoned the family. His words were to the point, The light is gone. More than 700 people died in the hurricane, mostly on New England's south-facing coast. Many days passed before the seas calmed down enough to get a boat out to Whale Rock. 
the lighthouse was completely gone, and to this day, the body of Walter Eberly has not been found. Eberly was 40 years old and had been in the lighthouse service for one year. The first of the two interviews we're going to hear today was recorded way back in 2001. At that time, I interviewed the surviving children of Walter Eberly. I was interviewing them for an article I was writing. I didn't worry too much about the technical quality of the interview, but I recently had it digitized, and I think it stands up pretty well. It's just under a half hour. The woman who did most of the talking in the interview was Dorothy Roach, also known as Dottie or Dot. She was the oldest daughter of Walter Eberly, and she had very clear memories of the hurricane of 1938. Dorothy passed away in 2012, and I'm glad I had the chance to record her memories. Let's listen to my 2001 interview with Dorothy Roach and the other children of Walter Eberly now. If you could, we could maybe talk about his... Uh his history just before he joined the lighthouse service, what his past was. Uh, he, was no, he was retired, a 20-year retired Navy. He was a chief petty officer. Yep. He was in the submarine service, yep. too. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he was, was a diver. He was a master diver. Yeah. Okay. Submarine service, and he was a... I, I do have his naval records. I think he was a chief gunnersman. And, yeah, because uh-huh. he lied to get into the Navy. Yeah. He, he ran, ran away from, from home. home. Huh. And, At what uh, age? Fifteen, I think. Fifteen. And he liked to get into the Navy, and they didn't find out that he was already over the age where he needed to be in the Navy, so they let him stay. He said he was 18 when he was 15, or? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, because he was born, what, 19, uh, no, 1898. His father was a, a, a doctor. doctor from Webster City, Iowa. Born in 1898. Right. And, uh-huh. and you say his father was a doctor? Yeah. His father was a doctor. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you uh, probably remember him as his father. No, no we, we never, never, met him. never met him. He ran away from home and they kind of disowned him, I guess, uh-huh. because we never heard about our grandparents there. So that has something you to do with them leaving home at 15, apparently? Yes. Right, definitely. The only one we heard about, he had a sister, mm-hmm. Miriam Pickard. Huh. So they're just the two, uh, Walter just said, well, yeah, one sister? Did, yeah, we just the two. And they, have no, they had no yeah. children. So he was in the Navy for 20 years or 20 a little, years, little yeah. 20 years, yeah. He came out of the Navy, and I guess I guess it was still the depression going on or something, mm-hmm. because he had a hard time finding a job. Right. And I remember that he did get a job for a short, short time uh, in a gum factory. Because, remember the gum. <laughs> because mm-hmm. he used to bring home wads before they were cut of, of wiggly spearmint gum. Huh. Where the gum factory was, and I don't know. But somewhere in uh, what area? Well, we, were, we lived in Newport, yeah. so it couldn't have been too, too far from there. Uh-huh. Yeah. He used to give it give it to us, and we were the, the kids used to love us because we had gum all <laughs> the gum you <laughs> want, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Now, this is, uh, what are we talking about here, uh, in the 30s? In the 30s, yeah. Yeah. That would be 36, 37. Yeah, in that area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess he... Uh, the year before he went into the lighthouse. Because I remember when he went, he went to interview. I just remember there was an interview. I mm-hmm. didn't know, you know, what it was all about. And and when he had come back and he had a job. Now, do you know what made him decide to go in the lighthouse service? A job. Yeah, he, well, and he maybe more interested in the he gum loved, factory. He, for he loved the water. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, he always said he was going to bury he was, the water. He was he was kind of in tune with 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 the water. He he could tell when storms were coming and stuff like that. He loved the ocean. You say he always said he would he wanted oh, to be buried always, in the, in the he ocean? He always or said he was going to die in the ocean. Yeah. 
Yeah. You had a very close call right off uh, the coast of Newport in a submarine. When he was in submarine duty, because we didn't have 95 at that time, and it was a long, long track to go from Newport to go to submarine in New London. Mm-hmm. And he had gotten up past Providence at one time when he forgot some salt pork that he had left at home that he was supposed to be bringing in. And he turned around and came back all the way to Newport to get the salt pork and then went. Well, he missed the submarine, and the submarine was never sighted again. Wow. But he was actually on the submarine, too, when it, yeah. when it went down. But it's a different, there's two different cases. Yeah. 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 So he missed that time, he missed the submarine. The submarine yeah, but so he was in submarine duty. Yeah. That was in, what, maybe the 20s or something like that? Or? God, that was somewhere during his late twenties. Well, the late twenties, because I yeah. I can remember that. Yeah. But another time, he was on a submarine. That, yeah, he yeah. was on the submarine. And it was not too too far from where Will Will Rock was because it's down in Newport, right around the drive. They have what they call a fisherman's memorial. Mm-hmm. You familiar with that? I was told. Well, about tell me about it. Yeah. I'm yeah. with the well, it, it's kind of archaic, I suppose, where that memorial is. Because if you look out at a certain angle, is well, where you could where see it from the ocean drive. Yeah. And if you looked out the other way, is where that submarine that he was on had gone uh-huh. down. Huh. Cool. I was going to say where the submarine went down. Was everybody rescued? Or? Uh, no, uh, they got out. I know uh, how, what happened. I don't know exactly, but uh, they were able to get, get rescued. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I remember when he used to be, he was in the submarine division at the time, but his chore was to dive for dud torpedoes over at the mm-hmm. top, around the torpedo station in Newport, mm-hmm. Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Goat Island? Well, actually, well, the torpedo station was on Goat Island. Was yeah. on yeah. Goat Island, yeah. yeah. But he used to be the one that would go down and dive for the ones that didn't go off. Oh, boy. Because I, I remember at home, remember oh, the diving helmet? Big, oh, diving helmet. Yeah. Huh. yeah, the ocean was his love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other stories about his Navy days that you think uh, I remember him were, uh, always marching in the parade, yeah. and he always was on the side, you know, with his, with his battalion. Yeah, with yeah. His saber, yeah. And every time he would see us kids, he would wink as he went by <laughs> because he couldn't break formation uh-huh. or anything. Well, see, a so, lot of the Newport Naval training. Yeah. I mean, he was like, oh, well, he yeah. was yeah. training the recruits. He did. He used yeah. to train, okay, and it was coming. a certain day they would have the drills. Yeah. Because and, and those of us that were here used to go over there. In fact, we lived on the training station for a while. I remember, I remember that. Well, that was year. Oh, I had to be very small. One time he came home. There's a little bit of the recording missing here. Uh, Dorothy talks about her father being away when he was in the Navy for some months, and he came back with a monkey. Or it might have been even a year. She took one look at him and the monkey, and she said, the monkey goes. <laughs> I remember that distinctly, because we were so upset with the little monkey. And I, was it a really a monkey? It was one of those cute little ones. It was a spider yeah, monkey. Like a little spider monkey. Right, right, yeah. Kind of like an organ grinder. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. The monkey goes, she said. Yeah. <laughs> the monkey goes. The little guy can stay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But he, he was always doing things like that. Uh-huh. At one time, he wanted to bring home a, uh, from Yakima, Washington, a little pony for us. But she wouldn't hear of it. Mm. So it sounds like he had 
enjoyed his life. In the oh, Navy. he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And he loved his kids. He, oh, yes. He loved yes. his kids. Used to walk the beach with them. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we, we tell our children and our grandchildren to say, oh, if your grandmother and grandfather were alive, they would have loved you. Yeah. They, they love children. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to get up in the morning when he was home mm-hmm. and he would make breakfast. And what I remember mostly about breakfast, he used to make corn pancakes. Huh. Corn fritters. Yeah. It was uh, like uh, a, Johnny cakes. Like yeah, probably a lot like that. But it was his own version, you uh-huh. know. <laughs> I don't like Johnny cakes. This was probably better. Yeah. Was, I had it like paper. Oh, they were so <laughs> yeah. good. They were yeah. so good. And he used to always... When he had corn on the cuffs, you cut the corn down, mm-hmm. not chew it like My meat. grandmother used to do that. Yeah, he used to cut. He used to do that all the time. So uh, in thirty-seven, he uh, he went into the lighthouse. He went yeah. about the lighthouse. Yeah. Somewhere mm-hmm. around thirty-seven, yeah. And what did the family think of that at the time? It seemed like a good. It, good it idea. was it, at that time. That time, it was a job. Absolutely. He was out of the navy. You know. He came home so many days was off so many days with the schedule that they had mm-hmm. so uh, we enjoyed it now was he uh did he spend any time in any other lighthouses besides whale no. rock in that year just just, no, just, just that one. and he was what was was he his official title just assistant, he assistant, keeper? assistant they didn't have some places have first and second assistant keepers there i no, guess he, it, was just said, two, hey, it was only two of them did any of you uh, go out there my there? older brother i don't know did you go no, I don't think no. so. I don't remember. My older brother used to go a couple of times. What's his name? Walter. Walter. He's, he just died. Walter he Jr. just died. Mm-hmm. Last Walter year. Jr. So. Yes, uh, Walter yeah. So he spent a little time out there? He spent time on the lighthouse with his father. Mm-hmm. Did he uh, enjoy it from what you remember? Yeah, but evidently uh, he it was quite tricky to get onto the light. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a. They evidently had something swinging out well, from the, the light. Well, that's the Davids for the boat. Uh-huh. You had to right. go up on the Davids, I think, because you were all rocks underneath there. Yeah. You know? yeah. And and he found that quite, you know, slippery and yeah. challenging. Sure was, I guess. Yeah, sure, it was really really difficult to get on and off. But I remember him talking about that going up there. Hmm. Any stories about the his days, you know, at at Whale Rock as a, as a keeper? Just he just spent a lot of time uh, crabbing. I remember he used uh-huh. to always be crabbing and uh, bringing the jars home yeah. and came home. No, it's just that he really enjoyed it. Like you say, he wasn't on that that yeah. long. Yeah, he might be on for three days yeah. or off for four. So he probably planned to spend the rest of his career in the lighthouse. I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. yeah. Well, the yeah. yeah, that's fairly typical, actually. A lot of a lot of lighthouse service people retired military. Uh-huh. Like but in hindsight, now I would imagine with the war coming, they would have pulled him back yeah, in. Yeah, he would have been pulled back in. Yeah, right. That's in the Navy, uh, even as an instructor or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was in the active reserves. Yeah, yeah, he was in the active reserves. Uh huh. Oh, he was. Yeah. If you don't mind my asking, how how old were were you? I was ten. Uh-huh. I was twelve. Okay, I was five. <laughs> you were over on the ocean. I was waving the sheet. Yeah, yeah, I was four. Because I hadn't got my birthday yet. Right, right. My birthday December. was in December. I had just turned ten. Yeah. It was, I was about three thirty in the mm-hmm. afternoon when they let us out of school because there was a quote big storm and we were to go right home. Mm-hmm. We're going home. Trees were falling. And <laughs> the trees were already falling. 
There was a little kid next door to us. Joe was it? little Joe. Kenny Joseph. That was missing. We all went hunting. When we got home, my mother and Her my friend. younger sister Mim and you, I guess. You're taking a walk down. Had to, my mother had heard the ocean. Run away. Yeah. We didn't live that far from the ocean. Had mm -hmm. heard it mm -hmm. and went to the Puff Walk okay. to take a look at it because it. Bob Easton Beach, the road away down on the hill there. Mm -hmm. I remember. I don't really remember, but I kind of vaguely remember water down there. Yeah, there was a lot of water yeah. down there. I know uh, she had gone with the uh, the neighbor. And they had uh, gone to the cliff walk, but they had a friend who was a governess On inside the, the gate. There was a gate at the end of the one of the street. estates. Yeah, and there was gate. a gate, and uh -huh. the governess lived inside there. And they stopped there when the wind was getting so bad. When they couldn't keep walking, yeah. the trees were coming down. In the meantime, her friend's husband came home and wanted to know where they were. And she told him they went to the cliff walk. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. Rumowitz and I foolishly took the car and tried to go find her because all hell's breaking loose. Because we didn't know that she was at the down cliff walks at this time. We were hunting for her. So the first place we headed for was, was the cliff walk. Right. Well, Mr. Romwich and I, after we had been all over, we'd have to stop and move trees and everything else. Mm -hmm. We couldn't find my mother. We thought, well, maybe she went to the beach. So we went to the beach. That gave you a better view of Cliff Walk, too. Right. Where the Cliff Walk starts. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. The beach. Mm -hmm. We were at the top of the hill when the tidal wave went over. Yeah. We had gone down, couldn't find her on the beach, had come back up to the top of the hill mm -hmm. when the tidal wave went over. Not one tidal wave. Tidal waves went over. I always thought it was one wave. It went clear over from the, the beach the to the reservoir, which is now a four or five lane highway. Mm. And there were there were young boys, I don't know how old they were, that were down from New York that used to, well, their families used to rent, uh, I don't know, tenements or what, but it was a summer deal mm -hmm. that stayed on East Barry Street. And... They were down, those kids were down at the beach, and the beach at that time had a boardwalk, and it had, you know, uh, pull the strings and all that stuff, and they had a big penny arcade. And the kids evidently, and I don't know this to be a factual fact, evidently were in Robin the Penny Arcade, and they were washed out to sea, and it split up up there. So in that, in that wave, you... In so when you were there, you believe that's when they were... That's when they left. They just disappeared. Okay. Mm -hmm. What Can you describe what that was like, seeing a, seeing a wave of that size? Awesome. It's something your imagination... I imagine it's very, very frightening to look at. But you know, it's strange, though. Whenever a storm comes, you always go to the ocean yeah. to yeah. see it. Yeah. Just to see the, the fury of the, the, the water. Yeah. You you know how insignificant you are. Well, this one, it went over. It ripped up the entire seawall. Having experienced that one in 38, and then 
these little storms that yeah, come off. They're nothing. They're nothing. Doesn't compare. Yeah. 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 You know what? What it might be though. We had never experienced anything yeah. before. Well, it was the worst storm in recorded New England. Yeah, history. It, it was. Certainly, was especially scary. for the South Coast. Because yeah. down in Newport at the time, too, a lot of the streetlights were gas lights. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's quite a problem yeah. when they got knocked over. Yeah. They had to turn the, the gas off. All I can remember is water. And I remember, I, I mean, I don't know if it's my imagination or the, I've been told it so many times mm -hmm. that I was on top of that hill and it was just, it looked like it was just filled up with water. That's what, and that's. That's I remember my mother saying that when they were going for the walk down by the cliff walks, there was a man and he had a, an Irish set of dog, yeah. and the dog kept pulling back and pulling back. It did not want to go. The dog mm -hmm. sensed it. Mm -hmm. They found both of them dead after. Yeah. I remember she was telling us she saw that that dog trying to pull a man back, mm -hmm. and the man just wanted to keep going and going. Yeah, yeah. And that was the end of them. Mm -hmm. But I remember after the hurricane, I, I remember the trees that were rolling. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of fields we used to be in, I know we used to use them as uh, our huts underneath the trees. Yeah. 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 Finally, I don't remember how we located the mount that was there because the phones were out. I think uh, she stayed there, I know. No, I think uh, Mr. Romwich realized that they must have stopped there. Yeah. And that was, you know, yeah, I, they were very good friends. All I know, she was home in the morning. She was home. When she got home, I don't, I don't recollect. I think that. Daddy had got home. They, all the three of them, got home mm -hmm. safe. It wasn't until about daybreak, whether it was six thirty or five thirty or six o'clock, that the phone call came in from Sullivan, who had, he had said, as soon as daybreak broke, he was at the Ocean Drive with his binoculars. Mm -hmm. He saw he saw the light from there first. Well, then he went to Narragansett. Well, he was going to relieve Dad. It was his duty to be going on. And my father told him to go back. But yeah. Dad but wasn't supposed to have been there. That's right. That's what I'm saying. He was. Oh, not, well, we're. I'm in the after the hurricane. Right. Uh, he, he just told him to go. He back. he knew there was going to be a storm somehow. I don't know. Well, mm -hmm. the seas were rough then, and that's why he told him to go back. They drove us out. Even went on a private estate to get us out there, and you almost think you could have thrown a stone to the yeah. rock. It was that seemed to be that close, mm -hmm. and you wonder how, why couldn't they have gotten gotten off? Yeah, but so then again, he might not have wanted to get off because yeah. Yeah. it was his job to keep the. That's the way they they were yeah. in the lighthouse service. You kept that light going yeah. no matter what. And there's a lot of stories during the hurricane, of course. At Prudence Island, five people killed at the lighthouse station, and everybody except the keeper, basically. And uh, at um, Palmer's Island, New Bedford, the keeper's wife yeah. died. But they all tried to stay at the station. Mm -hmm. um, and I know other other stories where the keeper spent the night of the hurricane, spent the night in the tower, like just at the light, but keeping it going. Night. Even though, of course, there's no boaters who could see right. the light at the. Mm -hmm. I, I remember that, uh, that when my Coast Guard had contacted my mother, they said the seas were too rough to get out. Right. This is, that when is, are we talking about now? This was after. You're after. Yeah, this was after the storm. Mm -hmm. Before the storm, the time when my mother first found out about it, I remember her taking that phone and saying, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. That was Sullivan telling her, the light is gone. The light is gone. That was how he told her. That's how he told her. And he was evidently agitated at the time mm -hmm. for fear, you know, but when the Coast Guard did contact, they said that they haven't been able to get out to the light. Right. Because as soon as they had more information, they would give it to them. 
and that was when the psychic came in. Yeah. Well, it was quite some time. So it was just a couple of days because it was on the Sunday after that the psychic. The psychic, no, yeah. but I mean the Coast Guard couldn't yeah, they get out there. Get out there, but yet the psychic for, when he came. You're saying after the storm. For, after for a the while, storm, was still too rough for the because Mr. Rumwich yeah. and my mother were constantly trying to have them go out to see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the day after. It was too rough. It was too rough. A couple of days mm-hmm. after. Couple, if, couple days after a man. He came to the house. It was on a Sunday. Mr. Johnson. Oh. I, Johnson keeps sticking in my in my head. And uh, it was Sunday church, morning. Really. She was at church. He said he'd come back. What day of the week was the hurricane? Uh, uh, we were in school, so it had to be either a Thursday, Thursday or Friday. Or Thursday, a Wednesday or a Thursday, something like that. Mm-hmm. But I know on the Sunday when he came, he said he'd be back. This is Mr. And Johnson. And he did come back. He told her before he started, I am not here for money. I am not here for... I just want to relate to you what a I vision. Now, this Mr. Johnson came to the house yes. on yes. Sunday? Came on twice. Sunday. Mm-hmm. Came yeah. first when my mother was at church. And he mm-hmm. came back in the afternoon. And he came back. Mm-hmm. And like he said, he did not want any money. He was not soliciting anything. He just wanted to let her know of a vision that he had. He had had on his way to yeah. Boston. And he, he told her... Now, nobody's been out to this lighthouse because the seas are too rough. But he right. told her about the, the other girl first. Yeah. Well, he's, there was a girl in Bristol that was lost, they couldn't find. Okay. And he told my mother about this, well, how he had had a vision just like the one he had with her, to, to go to her, to go to Bristol, that she was in a certain pond and that he had gone and they had searched and they had found the girl because she was dead, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And then, and it, yeah, and he said that uh, the lighthouse did not, not fall over. That's what the they thought. The floors collapsed one on top of the other. They just went down. All the mm-hmm. floors went down. He the, said it did not go. The bell went. They never did find that. The glass enclosure went, blew yeah. off. But he said that he had a vision that my father was taken off that light. Now, now see, I, I don't recall it that way. That I recall that what he had said that he was taken off, whether or not he was dead or alive, had amnesia or was injured, he didn't know, but he was taken off the light by two people in a boat, and one was a woman. This is what he had said. She, my memory, my memory is not with that on that one. Okay, but, uh, my memory is that Mr. Johnson said, "Your husband is alive. Your husband." got off that light. I don't know whether he's alive now or yet, but he got off in the dinghy that was there. And that place, it, the top blew off, but the rest of it collapsed because the water in the fresh water tank is still fresh and the potatoes are still dry that they stored down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby said no one had been to that light. Mm-hmm. The, the Coast Guard couldn't get there. And he sure couldn't go out of the dinghy either. Right. <laughs> and when uh, the Coast Guard did contact her later on, that's exactly what did happen. The floors did collapse. It did not. And a dinghy was missing. Well, the dinghy would have been lost anyway, no matter what. <laughs> well, it sounds, <laughs> maybe, maybe sounds, not. sounds plausible. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But we never heard from him again. Well, mm-hmm. he, you know, he really just, remember, he just wanted to relay. Yeah. Do you, can you picture this man at all? Yeah, I can. Was yeah. He, Oh. Was well dressed. Was he middle aged, older, or? I say he was in his thirties. Uh huh. 
Would you say that? I say 30 squatties. Yeah. Yeah. Very well spoken. Yeah. Very well dressed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Of course, naturally, we as kids clung to that story. Mm -hmm. My mother, being in the state she was in, immediately grabbed, you know, as a last resort onto mm -hmm. that. She was called so many times to go so many different places to look at bodies to see if it was his all over the, the state, you know? Yeah. It really, uh, she died two years later. And the do, you, do you directly uh, attribute it to, well, to that? Or? She well, died of tuberculosis, uh -huh. but she was... She went down from the... They've never found my father's body. Why do you say that mm -hmm. about... I want to say about 10 years ago, there was an article in the Providence Journal, and it said that there was something there, and the way it wrote it, it said it could be the uninterested remains of Whale Rock Light. Really? That's what it said. But the current was so... Yeah, and, that's... And I remember that, because it, it was in their Sunday... That pictorial section. Pictorial <laughs> section. <laughs> and it said... It was about 10 years ago. And I was going to write him a letter, and... Yeah, the uninterested remains... Yeah, of they said they, they like, couldn't dive down there because the, the way the... <laughs> The light was situated on a rock that had the currents. Uh -huh. Did they say it was fairly close to the lighthouse? Right. Policy? I had a, a, a very strange incident happen to me eh, quite a few years ago. Uh, my husband was a pharmacist and was in the drugstore that he was working at the time. And I happened to stop in there after uh, church on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And there was a very old man in there. And he kept staring at me and staring at me. Yet, I've told you this before. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, he came up to me and he spoke to me. And he said, you know, he said, you are the spitting image of my granddaughter. And I got thinking about that later on. He said, everything about you, she looks exactly like you. And I resemble my father. Mm -hmm. My father's side. Uh, mm -hmm. I got the same perfect tooth and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, right away you start thinking, did he get off the light? Did he have amnesia? Did he have another family somewhere? Mm -hmm. Who daughter looked like me, you know? So I, went, I wanted to find out who this man was, and I found out that he had died the next day. He had died the next day, and it, it wasn't anyone that was a customer, a regular yeah, yeah. customer. It was just somebody that probably was just passing through, mm -hmm. and his his uh, granddaughter lived up in the Boston area, up the coast there, you know. Yeah. And it it just always left me with a funny feeling. Yeah. Did you ever find out their name? No, because he had died. It was just passing. Yeah. He was just going through. It wasn't. How did you know he died? Because. Uh, I asked George, I think it was, the next day, oh, okay. and somehow or other, you know, he said that he had heard that, that uh, so George somebody was doing or something, yeah. yeah. Well, just, I think I would have been felt a yeah, funny Yeah, he's a funny yeah. feeling. No, because I do, I resemble my father. Yeah. So, but it, it was a, a weird feeling, especially when you thought that he might have gotten off, and the, and the guy did say he might have amnesia. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Anything's possible. Yeah. But how could he forget us six kids, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what gave him amnesia. <laughs> well, it kind of changed everybody's lives a yeah. little bit. Left the six of us. And a lot happened. Yeah. <laughs> Too much happened. But there, we what were, up until last year, all well. 
And then my, my brother died last year, the first of the six. Can we go back to um, before the hurricane that Keeper Sullivan was, was supposed to have been at the light? He was yeah. Yes, he was there. coming for the changing of the gods, you might yeah. say. Uh-huh. And dad was so rough, my father beckoned him to go back mm-hmm. because he didn't feel as though he could get out he actually, safely. He just motioned to him, though. Yeah. And Mr. Sullivan felt really the way guilty it, about that. He felt very guilty about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The way it appears in a book or two, it's something like uh, that Sullivan just decided to turn around. It doesn't mention No, no, no. no. My father he, he described that. He said that. Yeah. Because Mr. Sullivan told us that. He kept coming mm-hmm. out of my house. That he had beckoned him to go back. The seems were just too rough. And I think it was because it was hot enough to get on the light, the way that it was situated with that thing, with the storm being, you know, so... Oh, hard, sure. they wouldn't have been able. He wouldn't have been able to even if he got out that far. Yeah. Just what we always thought is, being a Navy man, my father would have headed for the light to keep it going. Mm-hmm. That's most where likely. he would have gone. In fact, that's what the Coast Guard thought. That after they found out it had collapsed, mm-hmm. that he must have gone for the light and it blew over. Because we don't know that with everything mm-hmm. else that transpired. No, they could tell from the remains of the lighthouse that it did collapse. Yeah, like yeah floor upon floor, it said. Potatoes were dry, water was fresh. If he had gone, we he would have been alive. I suppose there's always hindsight. Oh, yeah. It's always yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That really took toll on my mother, though. That's going to be so hard when there's no... Uh, never yeah. Been, I mean, yeah. You can't have closure. I have a feeling this, you know, this might end up being maybe like two pages in the magazine with an article and a few pictures. And, yeah. and That'll be nice. At least should be setting the, the story straight. That's what I want to do. I hope everyone was able to hear everything that was said in that interview. As I said, when I originally recorded it, it was to help with an article, but I'm glad I was able to save it and use it in this podcast. Michelle, you know how bad some of our recent storms have been, but I hope we never have another one like the hurricane of 1938. I agree with that, Jeremy. I hope we never see anything like that here. Clearly, I was not around then to see that hurricane. Yeah. Hopefully, I never have to see something like that. I sure hope not. Uh, our storms in January were really bad. Bad enough, yeah. Yeah, not not as bad as the Hurricane of '38, and that was that was a storm of a century, really. Next, we're going to hear an interview I just did with David Robinson. David is the state underwater archaeologist for the state of Massachusetts and director of the Massachusetts Board of Underwater Archaeological Resources. Back when he was based in Rhode Island, he was the first person to study the underwater remains of Whale Rock Lighthouse. He was also the driving force behind a memorial to Keeper Walter Eberly. It was great to get back in touch with David for this podcast. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with underwater archaeologist David Robinson, and it's so nice to be back in touch with you, David. We were in in touch quite a few years ago related to Whale Rock Lighthouse, our subject for today. So thank you so much for doing this today, David. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for, uh, for asking me, Jeremy. Absolutely. As I said, mainly we want to talk about Whale Rock Lighthouse today, but if we could start with a little bit about your personal background, how did you get interested in underwater archaeology in the first place? Well, uh, 
you know, I grew up with the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau on TV once a week that uh, I absolutely loved. And I had a, a great aunt, uh, my aunt Helen, that lived in Charlestown, Massachusetts. And when the Boston Aquarium first opened, she took me to the aquarium. And while the fish and everything were really cool, it was the divers that caught my attention. And I, my, my uh, father had been a commercial diver and his great uncle had been a Navy diver. So there was water, underwater in our family's history and background. And then, you know, I, I was born in the ocean state. And so I was always surrounded by ships in the sea. And uh, growing up in Narragansett, Rhode Island, I had friends whose dads were commercial fishermen. And again, so that was exposing me to seafaring life and so forth. And um, my mother, she taught me to be a reader and she also got me interested in history. And then uh, as a 10th grade student at Narragansett High School, a friend of mine, Peter Manning, and I, we had just gotten certified to be scuba divers when we were 15. And we dived on the wreck of the steamship Rhode Island, which has a connection to Well Rock Light. Um, we didn't know it at the time, but we did some historical research at the Narragansett Public Library. And anyway, uh, to make a, a short story long, we, we, we turned in a project to our history uh, teacher and we got an A on it. And it planted a seed in my brain at the time that you could do applied research and have it have an academic role or purpose and have success with it. And, you know, it was just, it was just a fascinating thing to, to do. Fast forward to when uh, high school's ending and I've gone to get an anthropology and art degree at the University of Rhode Island. And now I'm thinking about, oh boy, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I had received for a Christmas present from my father-in-law, Carol Harrington, a book called The Sea Remembers written by Peter Throckmorton. And it was also about the same time that the Titanic had been found. And there was a project on the cover of National Geographic, uh, the, the world's oldest shipwreck in Turkey at a place called Ulu Barun. It was being excavated by uh, graduate students and faculty at Texas A&M University and the nautical archaeology program there. And so I thought, wow, I would love to be the photographer taking the pictures on these on these kinds of projects. And it seems to me that in order for me to be able to do something like that, I need credentials. So I need to, uh, I probably need to get a graduate degree in underwater archaeology. Mm-hmm. So I applied, there was the only place I applied, I applied to Texas A&M and, and uh, I got in. And so uh, this kid from the ocean state went to the central plains of Texas <laughs> to learn about underwater archaeology. <laughs> I've been, I've been professionally employed as an underwater archaeologist since 1991. Uh-huh. And it worked uh, all over the place. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I was looking at your bio on LinkedIn, some of your past positions, and I know you've been doing what well, you said about thirty years or so. You've been doing this. Yeah, I think this is third year thirty-three. I'm in now. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. and a lot of your you're in, based in Massachusetts now, but you've worked around New England, obviously Rhode Island. I think Vermont actually for for a while as well. Is that right? Yeah, I did my um, my graduate field schools. Um, in Vermont, Lake Champlain, mm-hmm. and we were uh, our our field schools were a collaboration with the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum and the University of Vermont. So I, I absolutely fell in love with Vermont, and um, some of my first 
jobs in the field were working for the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum. And then I ended up transitioning to a job in Maryland, working for the largest cultural resource management um, company in the country at the time, our Christopher Goodwin and Associates, and got a lot of experience working in the Mid-Atlantic and in the Gulf of Mexico and the rivers of the southeastern U.S. And then um, came back to Vermont. I uh, was there for a few years and then ended up back in Rhode Island working at the Public Archaeology Lab in Pawtucket mm -hmm. and working throughout New England and the Mid-Atlantic in that position. And then um, in 2012, I uh, started my own company doing consulting underwater archaeology and then also started working full-time as a underwater researcher and archaeologist at the University of Rhode Island's Graduate School of Oceanography. I was a co-principal investigator on a seven-year project to develop methodologies for identifying ancient cultural landforms that have been inundated by sea level rise offshore. Cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. I want to get into that subject a little bit before we're done today, but uh, just to back up a little bit, what you were saying about your your early uh, experience uh, as a kid. Yeah, I grew up in, in Lynn Mass near Boston, so the New England Aquarium was a very special place to me, and I love seeing those divers, too, in that big tank. I didn't become a diver like you, but I, I wanted to be a marine biologist through a lot of my childhood. That didn't quite happen, but it's always always been an interest. And certainly, I think Jacques Cousteau inspired a lot of people. I've talked to others who said the same thing. So what got you interested in Whale Rock Lighthouse? So um, we moved to Narragansett in 1973. And I remember seeing the uh, cylindrical base of the lighthouse perched on top of the long whale rock that was awash in the surf. And when I first saw it, I thought, gosh, that looks like a submarine. It looks like the conning tower, the sail of a submarine moving through the water. And so I was, you know, I was interested in it. And I was on the school bus one morning going to school and I asked one of my, my friends who uh, lived in Narragansett a lot longer than me. And I said, um, hey, you know, I saw this thing. What is that? And so he told me the story, though it wasn't an accurate story, but he told me a story about a family being on Whale Rock Light um, and everyone dying in the hurricane of 1938, except for this this boy. And I think he conflated there was another lighthouse that was destroyed where uh, something similar to that happened. So he, I think he conflated the stories. But in telling me the story now, I was just absolutely, every time I went by this this lighthouse and could see it from shore i was just i'd be transfixed i was just absolutely um intrigued by its story and and this thing out there and always thought boy it'd be really interesting to be able to go out to that and take a look at it more closely yeah, yeah. i think your friend was mixing it up with prudence island lighthouse in narragansett bay which at which uh, five people died in the hurricane it was the yeah. keeper who survived he was washed back to shore by a wave and somebody grabbed him but five other people died. So when did you first dive uh, at Whale Rock to find the, to look for the remains of the lighthouse? The first time I went out to Whale Rock Light to dive, it wasn't to see if we could find any remains of the lighthouse. We were just going out to, going out for fun. It was a recreational dive. It was before I became a, an underwater archeologist and um, a friend of mine who grew up in Narragansett, uh, Bob Falvey had a little boat that we took out there and um, it was on the very first dive that we were there. I was exploring around the northwest side of the rock, 
and and the rock um it's it's a it's a tricky place to dive uh you know it's totally exposed to open ocean and the, the tidal currents are really strong there so uh, you have to time your dives around the tide but the uh the rock kind of sticks up off a pretty flat and featureless silty sand bottom and the water depth around the rock is about 50 feet and so you know this this rock is like a, a pinnacle that, that sticks up off the bottom anyway i was on the northwest side just exploring in the rocks and i noticed this pattern of these seaweed covered lumps on the bottom and i also noticed that there was sort of this flat uh, platy kind of appearance to the rocks where i was and you know the underwater visibility with a dive light was probably four feet five feet so i'm kind of flashing the light around in the dark and and looking at these lumps and realizing that they're in lines and then as I, I started to kind of scan them a little, little bit more of a distance, I realized that there were patterns. And then I and then I, I just immediately realized that I was looking at the iron, the curved iron plates of the lighthouse's structure and the lumps were the, the rivets or the bolts holding the metal plates together. Tell me again, how deep is the water we're talking about? So the water in that, location right around the base of the rock is about 50 feet this was uh we, we made this dive it was the first dive was in 1988 and i've only been out there i think one or two other times since and mm -hmm. uh, both times it was quite a while ago so i'd have to look at a chart to see exactly what it was from a dive log but yeah it was about 50 feet deep how did what you saw there the remains of the lighthouse compare with what you might have expected different well, well, there was some similarities, you know, I'd seen pictures of, of lighthouses like it. Uh, so I knew that there were these, these iron plates or cylinders that had, had bolts or rivets on them. And then, uh, as we came around and, and came up a little shallower on the rock, kind of crammed into some of the, the nooks and crannies of the rock, there were sections of railing, there were other parts, other components of the, the lighthouse. And so, we weren't surprised. I wasn't surprised to see these things, but um, it wasn't until much later. So now, fast forwarding to when we moved back to Rhode Island after being in um, in Vermont most recently. So now we're talking about the early two thousands. That I thought, geez, I'm now I'm an underwater archaeologist and I've got some experience, and we've moved back to Rhode Island. I want to go out and take a closer look at this the site. And I also knew that we were coming up on an anniversary of the the hurricane. And um, I think that's probably when you and I first got in touch with each other. I contacted you. I, I realized that you were writing books and doing lots of research on lighthouses. And the internet was a tool for doing research then that was kind of new. And so I think I reached out to you to try to get in touch with the, the, survive, the children, um, Walter's, Walter's children, to talk to them, see what they remembered. Also, to I, I talked to you and I talked to them about having a memorial service for their dad because I didn't, and none of what I read had I seen that that had happened. I didn't yep. think that he had been memorialized, and uh, it just seemed like the the right thing to do. When you examined what was underwater there, what do you think happened to the lighthouse in the hurricane? Well, the impression I got from what I saw in that first dive was that. The, the structure, the, the, you know, the, the cylinders that formed the, the tower, the lighthouse tower, the, the impression I got based on these fragments all around on the bottom, um, you know, basically everywhere I could see, 
there was these these pieces all around the base of the northwest side of the light. They were all maybe four, you know, anywhere from two and a half to four or five feet in size. So they were they were broken up pretty into pretty fairly small pieces. It gave me the impression of somebody taking a deck of cards and throwing them up in the air and then dropping on the floor. And that made me think of the destruction being a, a, a almost like an explosion, uh, you know, sort of a catastrophic boom. This thing just shattered and, and came apart. And then I started thinking about what we, you know, learned from the work that was done on the Titanic and and how, you know, started thinking about the tensile strength of cast iron. It's not very good. It tends to not be very flexible. In my mind's eye, I just had this vision of this thing kind of coming apart, sort of yeah. in a single catastrophic moment would the there's pretty strong currents there of course would that account for any of that sort of scattered nature of the these plates there um yeah i mean cur currents are definitely going to move things around and the power of the, the water flow is is strong but they, they weren't scattered over uh i wouldn't say a large distance it was just they were everywhere within my my visual field around mm -hmm. the base of the rock so they were they were pretty concentrated just just out into the mud and the sand just uh off the base of the rock so they didn't they didn't move very far and you know of course they were really heavy yeah so did the uh, so the cylinders didn't really survive intact at all it's just uh individual plates or sections yeah. of the cylinders that sort of thing yeah they were they were you could see the curve in them from the, mm -hmm. them being part of a, a circular thing there yep. was that curve but they were broken into pieces into fragments and all just kind of stacked on top of each other laying on the bottom yeah i want to read you something just a paragraph from an official lighthouse service report i'm sure you've read this it yep. was done right after the loss of the lighthouse and the hurricane uh, the person who examined it wrote, quote, it would appear that the top two stories, watch room and lantern, broke loose from the lower two stories and went overboard. Most keepers at other similar stations who were on duty during the storm stated that they took refuge in the top story. The deceased keeper of Whale Rock was undoubtedly in the same place when the top portion of the tower went. With the top gone and brick lining weakened, the remaining two floors dropped down, probably, distorting the shell plates sufficiently to collapse them. What do you th what do you think of that? I don't know if you have any comments on that report. Well, yeah, I did. I have read that. Um, I remember when I read it, I thought, eh, I don't think that's what happened. That's not mm -hmm. the sense I got. You know, no, I haven't done any real scientific research to refute or support my hypothesis. So, yeah, um, it's just an intuitive thing. But it it made me think of Dot's description of what she saw after she had come home from school and she was looking for her mother. Yep. And she saw she saw the what I think is the the tidal wave of the hurricane yep. that came into First Beach and destroyed all the structures on the beach and washed cars with friends from school into mm -hmm. the, the the water on the other side. But she described it as being like a two-story high wall of water coming yep. in suddenly. And so when you when you start thinking about West Passage and how it would have funneled that wall of water. Mm -hmm. um, because of the narrowing of the, you know, the, the mouth of the bay there. And then also it's, it's, it gets fairly shallow. I mean, 50 feet's not very deep for that big a stretch of water. I would just think that it would have magnified that, that wave, that, that tidal surge, whatever it was. And, you know, I mean, well, rock light is like right in the, the teeth of that. 
So to, to me, again, these bits and pieces of, of information lead me to think that it was a, it was a quick thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one difference, I don't know if anybody dove back then in uh, 1938, dived uh, to look at it like you did. So um, that certainly makes a difference. You got more of a firsthand impression. Another thing they talked about at that time is that they, they noticed that the, it wasn't so well bolted to the, the rock, I guess, as it probably should have been. I don't know how much that contributed to it going down, but it, maybe it would have been destroyed anyway. It's hard to say. Um, another thing I don't know if I ever mentioned to you, uh, a woman emailed me, I think it was short, around the time when I wrote some articles about this, you know, quite a few years ago now. Um, and she said that her, I think it was her grandfather was a ham radio operator in the area. And he was actually talking to Walter Eberly the, wow. the, just before the storm was coming in. Wow. And Eberly told him on the radio, he said, this is really weird. The, the water, I don't think he used the word weird, but strange that the water was so low in the bay there. He had never seen it anywhere near that low. And he was wondering what, what was going on. Of course, that often, I think, precedes something like a tidal wave, right, where the water yeah. will go super low. So yeah. that was interesting. Wow. So I think that radio operator was certainly the last person to speak to Walter Eberly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, when you were diving around there, did you ever find anything else of interest? I know there were a number of shipwrecks there over the years. Uh, you know, yeah. I, in doing background research, it sounded like there were six different vessels that ended their, their existence on that rock or as a result mm -hmm. of hitting that rock. I didn't see any evidence of any of those wrecks when we were mm -hmm. there. We, we did, in addition to doing the diving in the 80s and then again in the early 2000s, we did do a magnetometer and a side scan sonar survey around the rock um, as close as we could get and did find, you, you could see that the debris extended you know, around the rock, but not. it didn't look like it went very far. And that seems to make sense given the soft sediments that are kind of around the rock. I think anything... You know, like um, people have always wondered what happened to the lens, what happened to the lantern. Um, certainly the, the the waves and the storm surge during the hurricane would have pushed those things, I think, way to the north somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they also, these heavy pieces of metal and things would have sunk into the sediments too or been buried by the transport of silt on the bottom yeah. there. So it yeah. could be that there's quite a bit that's that's buried in those soft softer sediments. But the only wreck that, you know, that we spent any time looking at or researching was the, the steamboat, the, the Rhode Island, which because of its demise and there not being a light on Whale Rock, that's, and, and it was such a massive steamship and there were so many people, influential people that were investors and owners of that vessel and involved in that business that they were able to lobby for the funding to finally get a lighthouse put on Whale Rock. So there's that interesting connection between that first wreck that I was diving on as a 15-year-old and then, you know, its connection to to Whale Rock even being in existence. It's, yeah. it's pretty uh, kind of ironic. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the the lens. I was thinking that the when this happened, the lens probably shattered into many pieces. Mm -hmm. So it's not that surprising that, like you said, it's some of it may be buried. Some of it just got, got swept away. Yeah. But. I wouldn't expect to find an intact lens or anything like that. No. So you mentioned the memorial a few minutes ago, and you had a lot to do with establishing a memorial to Walter Eberly, and you and I were in touch a lot around those that time. Why did you feel there needed to be a memorial to him? Well, as I started to do the 
talk to you and do the background research into the story of, of the light and realize how poignant and tragic it was that Walter, the father, you know, husband and the father of uh, these six young kids that um, grew up without him, it being, you know, a, a time when, you know, it was a catastrophe. It was a massive catastrophe. So memorializing one person lost in that catastrophe, I guess, just it wasn't possible. It didn't happen for whatever reason. And um, I thought that was sad. I, I didn't think that was, uh, I just didn't, it didn't sit well with me. And and given that we were coming up on the, I think it was at the time, what was it the 60th anniversary? 70th. It was 2008, 70th. so it would have been 70. 70th, yeah. right, right. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, it seemed like an appropriate time to do it. And that's when I reached out to the Coast Guard to see if we could do something and also to the Beavertail Lighthouse folks to see if we could get a plaque installed inside the, the museum there that would allow people to and, and then also I, I talked to them about and they've they've done it um, putting a plaque outside that you could look at and then see the the base of the lighthouse out on well rock and read about what had happened and and the sacrifice that Walter Everly had made in manning that lighthouse during the worst storm that we've ever seen in this area. So I just, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think so too. And I, uh, just for people who might not know the museum you're referring to is the Beavertail Lighthouse Museum in Jamestown, yes. from which you can obviously see the, the remains of the, uh, the lighthouse there, as you said. Uh, and uh, there was an, an event, a dedication event for the plaque, in two th uh, you, as you said, on the anniversary of the hurricane in 2008. You and I both spoke at that. I was honored and humbled to have the chance to, to speak at that with some family members, with his some of his children present and everything. So pretty memorable. I don't know if you have any further thoughts on, on that day in particular, that whole experience. Uh, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. His Some of his children were there, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And there was a pretty good crowd. It was, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 people, yep. um, many of whom are his family members and extended family members. And um, I remember when uh, we finished the ceremony with taps, that being incredibly moving and, and I remember so that. fitting. And uh, yeah, it chokes me up now just thinking about it. It was, it was absolutely beautiful. And, and, and I know his family greatly appreciated uh, our words and the effort to to remember their dad. Yeah, I know they did. And yeah, I was quite moved that day as well. Let me ask you a general question. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the future of lighthouses in this age of rising sea levels and more frequent severe storms. And before you answer that, I'll just mention, you may or may not have heard that, you know, we had back-to-back -back coastal storms uh, in January, the 10th and 13th, that were really bad. I'm in the New Hampshire seacoast. It was really bad around here and up the main coast. And more than 20 light stations suffered damage in those storms, including Portsmouth Harbor Light, my local lighthouse here, very severe damage to the base of the lighthouse. So anyway, any thoughts about the future of lighthouse preservation with these things we're, we're facing at this point? Well, we know that sea level is rising, and I don't think there's anything we can really do to stop that from happening and in, in certainly in the short term. And whenever I hear conversations about, you know, what do we do and how do we respond? And I always think of being a child building sandcastles at low tide at the beach. And then as the tide comes in, you do all you can to prevent your castle from getting destroyed. Uh, you know, you dig the, the, the moats and you build the walls and you do all this stuff to, to protect your castle, but inevitably it goes underwater and, that's that. I think the really the the 
only thing we can do for these lighthouses that are in these vulnerable positions along the coast is to enjoy them while we can, potentially move them to higher ground, and certainly make sure they're well documented so that if they are accidentally destroyed in a storm, at least we have a record of what was there. And yeah. Beyond that, I don't I don't know what else there is we could really do. Yeah, yeah. Your thinking is pretty much the same as mine. Uh, but I love the analogy. It's a, not a happy analogy, but it's a good analogy to the child's <laughs> sandcastles. And I, I also, you know, part of my thinking, too, is basically nothing lasts forever. People like to say lighthouses are America's castles. They not they don't mean sandcastles, but right. uh, compared to the castles of Europe. But look at the castles of Europe. Most of them are in ruins. So, uh, you know, at least something remains and we have the history of them. So uh, I completely agree with everything you said. So I have, I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. <laughs> that question is, what is your favorite thing about underwater archaeology? My favorite thing about underwater archaeology is that everybody thinks it's cool. And it allows me to connect with all kinds of different people from all walks of life to talk about what I do for a job, what I do for a career, and to share with them my excitement and interest in the extraordinary history that we have preserved underwater here in, in New England. It's just a joy to share to share people's excitement. And it, it always, it, it re recharges my batteries for what I do because people think what we do is important and they're interested in hearing about it. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just great to, to get to talk to people about the work I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nicely said. And it is cool. It's very cool <laughs> what you do. And it's very cool what you did for uh, in memory of Walter Eberly. It's uh, it was an important thing to, to establish that memorial. So I must have thanked you a few times at, at the time, but I'm thanking you again now uh, for making that happen. It was a memorable day, certainly, when we dedicated that. It's great talking uh, with you again, David, today after all these years. I think it's probably been more than 10 years since we were last in touch. So great connecting with you again. And maybe we can talk more uh, about saving our sandcastles, <laughs> that type of thing. But I wish you all the best in your position there in Massachusetts now. And uh, again, thanks for your time today. You bet, Jeremy. Thank you so much. It's great to, great to see you and great to talk to you again. The destruction caused by the hurricane of 1938 was incredible. Michelle, help me out with some of the figures. Sure, Jeremy. The exact number of deaths isn't known, but it was probably close to 700. There were more than 1,700 injuries, more than 8,900 structures in New England were destroyed, and more than 26,000 cars were damaged or destroyed. There was more than $400 million in damages, which in today's money would be more than $8 billion. Wow, that's a lot. The hurricane, uh, after it hit the coast, it kind of uh, plowed inland and run right up through Vermont and destroyed millions of trees. I believe some of the forest areas still haven't totally recovered from that. Seven people died at lighthouses in the storm, including family members of keepers and one former keeper. But Walter Eberly was the only lighthouse keeper who lost his life while on duty in the hurricane of 1938. He was simply doing his job like so many lighthouse keepers through hundreds of years in this country. He was a hero, but all lighthouse keepers were heroes. The author Jody Pico once wrote, In reality, you don't ever change the hurricane. You just learn how to stay out of its path. I'll add one other quote to that. The 19th century Connecticut lighthouse keeper Kate Moore once said, 
The sea is a treacherous friend. I think that pretty much sums it up. We will be back with a new episode next week. For now, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light. Keep a good light.